from the National Race and Capitalism Project, welcome to season four of New Dawn, a podcast focusing on the intersection of race and capitalism, its theories, geographies, and histories, with your host, Michael Dawson. David Woodley is an associate professor of politics at the New School. She is author of the book, The Politics of Common Sense, How Social Movements Use Public Discourse to Change Politics and Win Acceptance. She's now a fellow in residence at Harvard University's Edmund J. Safra Center for Ethics and working on two new book projects. It's my pleasure to welcome her to the show today. Welcome. How have you been? I've been really well. Thank you for having me. And I know you're working on multiple projects, and I thought we could maybe talk about your project on the Movement for Black Lives a bit. Could you just describe that project for us and the role of ideology in organizing philosophy? Yeah, so this is one of two projects that I'm working on right now. And this project I came to because, well, actually, I didn't come to this project. This project came to me. (laughs) So in the midst of planning my second book project in 2015, 2016, the Movement for Black Lives reached its kind of zenith in terms of street demonstrations all over the country. And at that time, we were kind of saturated in videos and surrounded by the organizing that was happening in the movement. And so I was embroiled in the movement just as an observer and as a Black person, and particularly as a Black woman, but also as a social movement scholar. And I felt that the work that I was seeing coming out about the movement wasn't noticing the kinds of deep innovations that I felt were happening philosophically and organizationally within the movement. So I just kind of started writing about it. And then once I started writing about it, I started talking about it to people in other kind of academic spaces. And people kept asking me, when is the book coming out? And I kept saying, I'm not writing a book. And then finally, I think that I was at, I was at Johns Hopkins and they were like, oh, well, when is the book coming out? And I was like, you know what? I don't know. So um, (laughs) that was the story of how this book came to be. But as I've been writing the book, I realized that I have a kind of frame story to tell. So there's one big overarching story that I want to tell about democracy and social movements. And that story is basically that social movements are a democratic institution. Social movements are not only a normal part of any kind of democratic society, but they are also an essential part of any kind of democratic society that wants to survive and not in devolve into unresponsive oligarchy and ruin, basically. So social movements save the lives of democracies. And underneath that story, or within that sort of framework, I tell the story of the movement for Black lives. And what I want to do with that story is to unearth two big things. One is what I think was a new political philosophy that has been developed in the movement, one which I call radical Black feminist pragmatism. And then the other is to talk about the organizational and tactical innovations of the movement and try to sort of catalog those, because I'm not sure that that has been done systematically yet. So that foreshadows my next question. One of those, I think, really strong takeaways from when I was reading some of the work from the book is your description of radical Black feminist pragmatism. Could you describe that ideology for us and also talk about how it might relate to Black ideologies from previous period of insurgency, such as the 1960s and 70s, such as, as as you know, I've written about Black Marxism and Black feminism. How does it develop out of and or different from previous radical Black ideologies? Well, it does both, right? It develops out of and differently from other Black ideologies. So let me just back up and say each term, right, of radical Black feminist pragmatism has 
an important role. So when I say radical in radical black feminist pragmatism, it's about a mode of questioning, right? Radicalism is about a mode of questioning that refuses to take the way things are as given. Right? It wants to look at the root of problems. And so in that way, radicalism has a kind of deconstructive tendency uh, because it wants to say that the way that we understand things to be at this moment is not the way that they always have to be. So radicalism is really central to the philosophy of the movement. Then there's the term black feminism, right? Those things come together. And black feminism in this sort of conception is an ethical system right, with like blackness as an episteme, basically. But black feminism, of course, is the long tradition of black women, black American women's thinking about what constitutes justice and what constitutes politics and how we are to respond to it, right? Going back to Anna Julia Cooper and even before, people who are thinking about what it means to be a political subject when the sort of dominant aspects of your identity, at least as you're identified in the outside world, are depoliticized and objectified. Okay, And then the pragmatism part of it was the part that I was the most hesitant to include because usually radical and pragmatism don't necessarily go together unless you're talking about a kind of realism, right? a kind of sharp realism. But I mean pragmatism in the traditional American sense, which is a mode of judgment that guides action. And a pragmatist mode of judgment that guides action relies on the acknowledgement of fallibility, the insistence on experimentation and the belief in progress, right? The fact that you can reach toward that thing that you strive for, and even though you will likely miss the mark, you reassess and you try again. So it's a mode of judging and thinking about what actions will yield, reassessing, and then going back into the breach. And I think that each one of these terms is really essential to the political philosophy of the movement for Black Lives. Now, that is just sort of how I named it. But in terms of how it's constituted, what it's made up of, there are nine elements. Five of those elements are substantive, and four of them are constitutive, right? Constitutive meaning they're ways of doing the work. Okay, so the five substantive elements are, one, the political claim of the movement for Black Lives, which was very self-consciously articulated, and that is that Black Lives Matter. Right? There's some fantastic sort of work already by Patrice Colors and Asha Bendele and others about how people who were involved in the movement from the beginning, and that is from the reaction to the acquittal of Trayvon Martin's murderer, were very self-conscious about saying, we have to put blackness and race in the front of this. Right? We have to say in the title, in the topic of everything that we're doing, that we are insisting on a racial frame. Because if we don't put Blackness out front, it will get eclipsed. People will try to look away from it and try to make this movement about something other than the striving for justice for Black people, okay? So one is the political claim, which is that Black lives in particular matter because they are particularly marked for oppression. The second substantive part of the philosophy is the radical mandate. And this is something that was penned by Mary Hooks, who is one of the main organizers in the movement, who's a Black Southern organizer. And she wrote this mandate that was repeated at demonstrations demonstrations again and again all over the country. And what it is, is the mandate for Black people in this time is to avenge the suffering of our ancestors, be worthy of the respect of future generations, and to be willing to be transformed in the service of the work. And this was 
done as a call and response at demonstrations all over the nation. And it became integral to the way that people were experiencing doing this work together. And I just think that it's so such, first of all, a moving statement, but such an interesting statement because it encapsulates in it a lot of interesting terms, right? So that that notion of avenging ancestors, what does that mean, right? Is that avenge as in vengeance? Or is that avenge as in vindication? Or is that avenge as in venerate? You know, and I think that actually all those things are potentially encapsulated there. Again, this is about not only justice in this particular moment, because in many ways, that kind of justice, the justice that we seek, right, the ability for Black people to live and thrive, right, as a people, is not something that we will probably be able to achieve in one generation. It's something that requires our dedication to future generations and also future generations' commitment to struggle, right? So there's an intergenerational aspect there that I think is really critical. And then the third term I think is so interesting, to be transformed in the service of the work. This captures something about organizing that I think that we don't think clearly about, at least in political science, that often. And that means that organizing work, unlike mobilization and unlike activism, organizing work is about transforming the subjectivity of both the organizer and the organized, right? Organizing work is about changing what people think about the kind of person they are, right? About socializing oneself again and again into the kind of person who can do the work that has become necessary. Does that make sense? That does make a lot of sense. One of the interesting aspects of pragmatism as as defined within American philosophy is it ties to action. And it's a willingness, as you said, to embrace fallibility and learning. What have been some of the tactical innovations that you've also been documenting? There's several tactical innovations. One is the sort of structure of the movement itself. So the Movement for Black Lives is a consortium of organizations and individuals who commit themselves to work, you know, to be transformed in the service of the work of destroying white supremacy and making it possible for Black people to live and thrive. But the way that it is structured is a semi-federated table structure. And I remember being so fascinated the first time I was told about this, which is that the Movement for Black Lives has no central organization, but they do have tables based on expertise, right? So an organizing table, a healing justice table, a communications table that are made up of people who have expertise in these areas from different organizations all over the movement and sometimes from no organizations. They're just people with expertise. And they get together and they talk through issues that people are dealing with in their various campaigns and organizations all over the country. They talk about whether or not it makes sense to coordinate activities. They share knowledge resources. They sometimes share financial resources resources, and they take decisions, right? So I remember when I was first interviewing people for this project, you know, everyone likes to say, you know, it is a movement without hierarchy. And the folks that I was talking to would say, actually, that's not true. It has hierarchy. It's just decentralized, right? So the Movement for Black Lives, although in the beginning, especially in Ferguson, there were very highly publicized rifts between, for example, people in the movement and Al Sharpton, right? Or, you know, stuff like this. There are actually many elders, many of them black women, but not all, who were very deeply involved in the civil rights movement who give counsel to people in the current movement. And, you know, that jump on phone calls, right? And 
you know, give people perspective about the things that they struggled with in the 20th century civil rights movement and how they can avoid them. One of the aspects that you talk about is the difference between organizing, activism, regular modes of participation, and organizing as a mode of being in politics. Can you talk a little bit about the differences between those different activities and what you mean by being a mode of being in politics? Absolutely. So this is kind of terrain that has been uh, explored a little bit by uh, social movement scholars, but particularly people who are in labor scholarship talk about the difference between organizing and mobilization a a lot. But political science doesn't talk about it that much. We often usually only talk about mobilization. So mobilization is when you get the troops in line, right, basically. When you call people together who are fully knowledgeable enough and skilled enough to complete the action that you need them to take. political scientist, that action is usually voting, right? But it could be something else, right? It could be anything else. It could be you're mobilizing letter writers, you're mobilizing people to do phone banking. You can mobilize people to demonstrate in the street, right? But when you're doing that, you're calling people to arms who already know what they're doing. They already perceive themselves to be the kind of people who can do this thing. They have their own reasons why. Okay, activism or activists are the people who show up, right? Activists are the people who consistently show up at mobilizations or start spontaneous demonstrations, but they are people who understand themselves to be, or maybe they're just dropping in, but usually they're people who understand themselves to be, you know, the kind of people who turn out. However, activists don't necessarily have to have a power analysis. Activists don't necessarily have to have a plan for further action. Activists don't necessarily have to be part of an organization, right? They're they're just individuals who turn up to express themselves politically. To be organized, right, to be an organizer and to be organized is a different process altogether because being organized requires a power analysis, right? Meaning that it's not about just turning up at an event. In fact, during the process of being organized, you may not be turning up at events, right? The first thing you do is develop relationships with people. And that's not just the organizer, that is the person who's trying to gather people together and be in relation with them, but also people who are being organized. It's about being in relation with others, right? And having a power analysis about what that relationship means right? Both sort of within the context of the relationship, whether it is your church congregation or the people that you're working with or the people who are interested in putting a stop sign at the end of the street, right? It's about understanding what being in relation with those other people mean vis-a-vis some set of decision makers that you want to influence, right? So you have to have a power analysis to be an organizer. You have to value the relationships that you create, right? in this process of organizing, right? It's a process of political socialization, right? We used to, in the social sciences, talk about political socialization a lot more, but it was usually thought about in terms of what you're socialized to do in childhood by your parents, right, or in your community. But organizing is actually also a process of political socialization because you come to understand politics maybe for the first time or maybe in a different way, and you come to understand your role in politics in a different way. So those are the things that characterize organizing as as distinct from activism and mobilization. And organizing is a much more long-term process with much longer-term effects. You discussed two philosophies of organizing. One was what I would argue are strong roots in the Black radical and other radical traditions that encourage activism. It has a holistic critique of structural oppression and systems of domination. 
and often has a philosophical and, and, and or ideological perspective for understanding the world. What's the other approach? Well, the other approach is like broadly the Owinsky approach. And now this is not to say that there was no, you know, interchange between these two approaches. But Saul Alinsky had this approach that he articulated in Rules for Radicals, and is still the basis of a lot of community-based organizing that goes on today, for example, in the Industrial Area Foundation, which still exists, um, and Make the Road and other kinds of organizations like that. And Basically, the major tenets of organizing are still the same, meaning that you meet people one-on-one, you try to develop relationships within a group, you start where people are, right? Like you don't come in and impose your views about what's wrong with the situation on people, but instead kind of try to facilitate a discussion and analysis that values local knowledge. But it is avowedly not ideological. Saul Alinsky had a very deep suspicion of ideology and almost felt like ideology was inherently elitist. And even if it wasn't elitist, that it was divisive in a way that wasn't useful. And so you find that groups that still have a kind of Alinsky view, even though many of them are much more sensitive to the need for a political analysis, there's still a kind of default to what we're doing is self-evidently necessary based on the needs and wants of the people in this community, and it's not about politics. And that's really different than the root of organizing that you found in the civil rights movement that was kind of spearheaded by Ella Baker and Cynthia Clark, um, the people who made the curriculums for the freedom schools that had power analysis built right in right? It was impossible to organize without the notion of analyzing power, which is not to say that there was a kind of rote or prescribed set of, you know, it wasn't like a strict doctrine necessarily, but the idea that you had to have a power analysis that guided the way that you would act was always inherently already there. And of course, with the positionality of Black people um, in the South in the 1960s or Black people anywhere at any time, and especially Black women, you have to have that in order to understand your experience in the world. And the whole root of the genius of organizing is that it's about people coming to an understanding of their experience in the world and how to change that experience for the better. Yes, my own opinion is that politically, if you really want to insist on a sort of the Alinsky approach, you're assuming a lot of privilege that you can, that you can get through organizing without talking, taking into account the most marginalized, the ones who are. And it also seems just as more as a scholar, although this also has political implications, I don't know how you explain the success of the civil rights movement, the success of the women's movement the success of the Black Power Movement, if you think that illogically oriented power analysis-based organizing is counterproductive. Yeah. No, I agree with you. I think it assumes a lot of privilege and more specifically, I think it assumes whiteness. I think that's, you know, it's not, you know, because the only way that you can have organizing without a power analysis that calls out white supremacy, patriarchy, you know, and capitalism is if only one of those variables is relevant to you. And I think that that's absolutely what happened, right? You see this historically, you actually see that what happened with Saul Alinsky's you know, organization that he started in the back of the yards is that it started out as an integrated organization that insisted, even at that time, on not talking about race and only talking about class. And as soon as he left the back of the yards, it became a segregated white supremacist organization. So, 
yeah, I mean, organizers in the civil rights movement and organizers in the movement for black lives and everyone in between, black organizers or those who are interested in justice are very right to call out racism and patriarchy right from the beginning and all the time, because otherwise you default to the ideologies, right, the hegemonic ideologies that are already ruling. It's true, including in some cases, like within the black movement, ban on criticizing black middle class and upper class leaders. <laughs> Not to mention that you can't criticize black men because that's, you know, that's hurting our brothers when those men need to be called out of. I agree with what you said. And to move back to the movement for black lives, maybe you could talk about how you argue that organizing helps transform helplessness to hope. And you could also describe the politics of care, because that's very different, I think, from the 20th century movements. Well, this is one of the main things that people in the movement today learned from their elders, right? So so I didn't I actually didn't even get through my whole list of about we got through two things. Okay. So all right. So just to as a little review. So there's the political claim, right, which is that Black Lives Matter. There's the radical mandate, which is about, you know, avenging ancestors, intergenerational responsibility and being transformed in the service of the work. The other things are the intersectional lens, right, which comes from Black feminism, which is that all oppressions are not, that oppressions are not additive, but they intersect given the material, social, and psychological consequences of politically relevant identities. Okay? That's Kimberly Crenshaw, right? Uh, Among others. There's the margin to center ethic, which is sort of out of bell hooks. You can also find references to it in Enrique Dussel, right? Which is basically saying that reasoning about justice has to come from the evidence of the lived experience of those who are at the margins or the exterior basically the people who are the most impacted, right? Rather than from an abstract ideal of the universal human. The next thing after the margin to center ethic is the politics of care. And this is the last of the substantive elements of the political philosophy. And this politics of care is oriented toward creating an intentional community in which individuals and their trauma and their feelings and their hopes and their dreams are valued within the context of doing political work, right? And it is this view that political action and social change are actually integral to healing trauma, both individual and community-wide, right? So it is this idea that if you're trying to organize people who are oppressed, if you're trying to organize people who have been subjected to all kinds of traumas, both individual and structural, then a part of your organizing work has to also be healing work. Um, And a part of your organizing work has to also be about how you create a space in which people can feel what joy and freedom and, you know, imagination where it can be practiced. Uh, So that's very integral to the movement. And it's something that people maybe felt for themselves and maybe it's generational, but also was a lesson that they learned from elders who said, look, we worked and worked and worked. (laughs) until we were burned out and then we worked some more and none of us had any sympathy for others of us as we fell down and that caused many organizations to fall apart yeah most in fact almost entire black radical movement eventually right right and so that was from the very beginning this notion of defending black joy and self and community care have been very central to the political philosophy of the movement now is it always implemented 
no, right? It is not always implemented. This work is very demanding and people get, but in terms of the ideology of the movement, it is very important, right? For people to care for themselves and each other, but that care is not actually separate from the movement work, right? It's not actually about the kind of commodified self-care that has come out of actually the the movement, right? So this is one of the things that I trace in the book is that the the notion of self-care, if you kind of look at Google Trends mentions of self-care, they spike in 2014. And that's almost entirely movement people sharing the Audrey Lord quote, right? Like within the movement. And it and it corresponds to this fantastic I don't necessarily want to call it a technique because that makes it sound so dry, but this thing that was happening in the movement where when we were overrun, especially in 2015 with all the videos of Black people being murdered and harassed, often by law enforcement, there was a simultaneous technique that was developed by people in movement and just Black people who were around of posting love letters right, to Black people, which was basically short videos that said, I know that there's another one of these videos going around. I know there's so much going on, but I want you to know that you don't have to watch it right now, that I love you and I love Black people. And if you need to take this moment to, you know, for yourself and for your mental health, then you could do that. You know, like, so there was this sort of at the same time as the sort of sharing and the momentum of the demonstrations in the street was at its height, there was also always this practice of care and always this acknowledgement that what's happening to us is not only political, but it's also personal and it's also psychological. And it's just about as, it's just as much about our hearts as our heads. I think without a feminist analysis, it's almost impossible to develop a politics of care. Agreed. Part of what happened in the 20th century, and I, I hate to date myself on speaking from experience, is that these organizations, many of which were led by feminists and Black feminists specifically, still had a very masculine, it's a very militaristic or, orientation toward themselves. Yeah, so even if we are going to practice the politics of care, it's about the, it's for the masses of people, it's for the communities we work in. But we ourselves are much too tough, much too strong, much too illogically committed to have to worry, worry about that. And it's a sign of weakness if we do. And that's extraordinarily self-destructive. It is. It is, right? And so that is part of the one of the things that this movement took in, right, is that it's not possible to sustain work under those conditions. And also the work that you do, you know, if you're not working in an organization that cares about the people doing the work, then the amount of care that you can give to the community will also be limited. And not only that, but your imagination of what justice requires will be limited and stunted, right? Because that's what's so interesting is that it's actually all of a piece. Because one of the things about the radicalism of the movement is that it's not just about getting laws passed or getting rights it's about how do we create a world in which Black people can live and thrive. And the creation of that kind of world is something that requires us to think about care when we're thinking about new institutions, new social practices, new social norms, new laws. Like, you have to be thinking about that all the time. Otherwise, you actually cannot create such a world. Yeah, that, that, that brings two thoughts to mind. One is that the feminist movement in general, of course, has talked about care as an integral part of how we need to live, how we need to imagine our relationships to each other. But one of the genius of this neoliberal movement we live in is that everything can be commoditized. 
and turn on its head. So a lot of what we see about self-care today is that it's become a massive industry. It's all about, if you're not all right, it's because some, you're not taking care of yourself. And that, of course, goes into the flies in the face of the type of politics of care that the Movement for Black Lives and other Black organizations are approaching. The other thing that, as I think you know, I've written about a concept called pragmatic utopianism. And my pragmatism is different. It's the sort of just the, the street realist version of <laughs> 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 pragmatism. But the utopian part is critical because, and I think this is something that people tried to reach in the 60s and 70s and later, but had a hard time imagining, is how do we imagine a world in which we are happy, a world where we flourish, a world where we have an opportunity to fulfill our best selves. And I think what was maybe not as well understood as it is today, and people are still struggling with, how do we create spaces where we can see glimpses of that? Yeah, absolutely. Well, this was, I think this was the whole thing about defending Black joy, right? Like, so one of the things that you see, you know, in the discourse in the movement is that there was always a practice of creating spaces, both in real life, but also online, where people could just celebrate Blackness, right? Where they could define it and celebrate it, where they could define Blackness beyond suffering and then celebrate it. Right. And you see this with the kind of online, you see this with the use, the explosion of hashtags in, you know, 2015, especially through like 2018, where people are, you know, using hashtags like Black Girl Magic, uh, but also Black Boy Joy and Melanin on Fleek and, you know, Thanksgiving with Black Families, which is like one of my favorite things in the whole world. Have you seen, have you seen these memes? You would enjoy them. I've seen some of them, yes. But so they're, they're sort of updated every year. But, the, you know, this is a way of defining and sharing Blackness beyond suffering, right? It's not about, you know, being in struggle, like not for this moment. It's not about anybody being hurt or dying or the disparate statistics or anything. It's just about the joy in Black culture, defining what it is, and then just being happy, right? Like celebrating it in the, in the midst of all this other stuff that we are also facing. But this is like a carving out of space to feel that. And so I think, you know, that also happened in real life. You know, often there were parties that were called like, you know, black and bougie or <laughs> other, you know, that were just sort of gathering places for people to enjoy, not just the company of others, which is really good, but also in real life spaces to be able to define and celebrate blackness beyond suffering. And I think the movement has always been very aware of the need for that and also expanded the terms on which it happened. Because the other thing that the movement does is the rejection of respectability politics uh, in a very systematic way. But that rejection of respectability politics is, I think, a deep one. So of course, the politics of respectability was a kind of early civil rights approach that it was really just part of the political philosophy, which was basically saying, you know, it's even before that, right? Like, like it's the new Negro. It's like, you know, basically... Yeah, it goes back to even the 19th century. Right, right. If we're the very, very best you know, according to kind of dominant norms. If we outnorm the white normies, then they'll have to give us respect and they'll have to give us rights and they'll have to start treating us like human beings. Well, it turned out that wasn't true. And I think that one of the things that sort of underscored that for 
the black millennials who were at, at the helm of this movement was honestly the Obama presidency. I think that without the Obama presidency, the movement for black lives doesn't happen the way that it did, but not for reasons you might expect. I think that the Obama presidency showed black young people that it doesn't matter how respectable you are. It doesn't actually matter the heights that you reach. You can literally be the most powerful person in the world, but you still black. If we're going to fight for Black people, we have to fight for all Black people. And we can't eschew or put in the background those who don't photograph well, right, according to dominant norms, right, or who are, quote, not angels. So that was always very, very clear for movement. And it was because of that sort of rejection of respectability politics that the notion of what kind of Black joy could be defended became much, much broader. So you see like the proliferation of ways to be Black also in this time period. Um, and when I say that, I mean to say that like growing up in the late 80s and 90s, you could choose to be kind of one of the kids from a different world, or you could choose to be gangster rap. Like that was it. Those were your options. And you know, otherwise you could be culturally policed both from the outside and the inside. Now, not this didn't happen to everybody. It wasn't necessarily a universal experience, but it was super common, right? And during the movement, there was a proliferation of all kinds of ways of being black, right? So there was a celebration of individuality and community and subcommunity. So you had like the black dandies and black geeks and black queers and you know like all of these different ways or all of these different spaces in which black people were claiming space as black people um you had like afropunk right the rise of afropunk like all of this stuff and i remember actually in 20 in 2014 thinking and at that time i was pregnant with my youngest child and looking out into popular culture and thinking mike like my god <laughs> this kid will get to to express herself in any way that she wants to express herself in all the ways, the all the multifaceted ways that Blackness can manifest. And she'll have a place and a home and nobody will tell her she's acting like she doesn't, you know, acting white, right? Or doesn't identify properly or whatever. And I think that is something that the movement did culturally, but also politically, right? With the centering of queerness and sex workers and incarcerated people, right? It allowed the movement to focus on all kinds of things that the 20th century civil rights movement didn't and couldn't focus on. That's true. And I do think that one of the things that happened from the 60s to the 70s is that because of the ideological diversity in the civil rights movement and then the Black Power movement, there were a lot of ways to being Black. But one of the things that happened among Black radicalism is that it became much more doctrinaire Marxist. And the different ways of being Black started becoming, or at least becoming being a Black radical, became much more narrow. And uh, so enjoyment of different types of cultural expressions, the types uh, were either considered secondary or, or dismissed for ideological reasons, which I think you add neoliberalism to that mix and you get two types of being Black by the 1990s. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> Yeah. No, the other thing about the movement is that it's actually quite ideologically diverse. Part of the reason why I sort of try to cobble together this ideology, because the movement is unified in terms of certain principles, right? Like, so to a person, everyone I interviewed, and I didn't prompt them, right? When I say, when I ask people, what is the movement for Black Lives about? 
everyone says creating a world where black people can live and thrive not always verbatim but that's always it right like for everybody but some of these people identify as socialist or Marxist or liberals, right? Or, right, like now liberal has become a kind of slur. So I mean like classical, on the left, liberal has become a slur. So when I say liberals, I mean classical liberals, like, like people who don't identify as socialists or Marxists per se, who have some problems with capitalism but are not willing to throw it out the window, right? Like, so, you know, you're kind of social democrat kind of person. Somebody like Charles Mills or Tommy Shelby. Right, exactly, exactly. So you have a range of beliefs, and then you have some anarchists, right? Like, there's always anarchists in the mix, right? Like, so there's a range of ideologies, but people were unified by just this basic belief, this belief that they must and could create a world or contribute to creating a world where Black people can live and thrive. So that sort of dwindling down of Black radicalism to only Marxism expanded back out, right? And I think it's been really healthy. And and you see the different ways that people are actually working. Now, that wasn't always conflict-free. There was a major divide in movement about whether or not to get involved, whether or not and to what extent and at what level to get involved in electoral politics, for example. It was a huge, huge debate. Now, that debate became simpler after 2016, I have to say. That was when one of the tables, uh, the creation of the electoral justice table in 2017, because of the fallout from that uh, election, right? When people came to understand or came to realize that actually electoral politics does matter for the quality of people's lives and for the amount of harm that people might suffer, right? No one believes that that's, you can vote yourself out of every problem or even most problems, but you, you should participate in electoral politics in order to mitigate harm, right? Like that came to be kind of like, and also in terms of coalitional politics, there had been frictions in terms of whether or not the movement should be in deep coalition with other movements, you know, particularly, you know, non-Black immigrants, Native peoples, like, you know, other kinds of feminist groups, right? Like other, there was like some tension about how deep in coalition the movement should be. But also after that election, coalitional politics became much easier to do because people understood the need for it so much more, again, about the mitigation of harm, right? You know, so I think that the movement has evolved, right? And it evolved ideologically, the the entire time. But that's also part of the pragmatism, right? One thing that many movement, you know, people in leadership positions in movement would say, but also just people who are participating would say that you're not aiming for perfection. You're, you know, aiming for progress with accountability, right? Like, so people always talk about being in your integrity, right? There's a whole I guess movements always have their own lingo, but there's a whole kind of what I think of as a pragmatist discourse about we're not going to get this entirely right right now. It's going to be painful and we might have hurt feelings, but as long as we're in our integrity, which means that we're being accountable to our people and we want to make things right, then that's where we want to be, right? Like that's what we have to do. And it's an uncomfortable space. That makes a lot of sense. So you talked about two books. Can you briefly tell us about your other project? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. My other project is different. It was the planned second book, and it's called What We Talk About When We Talk About the Economy. And my kind of bread and 
butter methodology is discourse analysis, which is like a quantitative and qualitative analysis of popular discourse, right? Common discourse stuff that's, you know, online and newspapers, et cetera, but also combined with interviews. And I thought, you know, the economy is a perennial topic of conversation in terms of our, you know, popular politics, but also in terms of our disciplinal politics and the social sciences. And yet I have this feeling that we're all talking about something different, <laughs> depending on our positionality. And so the idea of the book is to map the discourse of what the economy means for five different kind of, you know, sort of positions that is people who are always talking about this in our sort of structural positions in our society. And so that's, you know, regular folks, industry, right? That's capital, gatekeepers who are the media representatives, folks in Congress and elected op- other elected offices, and economists, the experts. And to do interviews with people who are in each of these sectors, as well as analyze the popular discourse about the economy in various sort of media outlets, both traditional newspapers and online, to kind of figure out, you know, the actual design of the discourse of the economy, right? Like the sort of Venn diagram of where we overlap and where we don't. Basically, to think about, you know, how to operationalize what's relevant when we're talking about the economy and whether we're what we are, if we're talking past each other, right? And the kind of theoretical backbone of the book is an argument about flourishing, right? And what we know about what makes people feel happy and satisfied and how our political economy doesn't deliver those things. (laughs) Yeah. So, so that's that project. So it's a, it's, it's a project that's about like, what are we talking about when we're talking about the economy? Are we ever talking about flourishing? Who is talking about flourishing? And what can we do about it? I can't wait to see both books. So hopefully they'll be out in the next month or two. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for coming on. This has been a real pleasure. Please find us at raceandcapitalism.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at racecapitalism.com to find out more on what's happening with the project.